Now, you scooped my Elizabeth Taylor interview by several years, didn't you? By a year or two, wasn't it? Yes, because I was interviewing Richard in the States when he was up for an Oscar. This was in the early 70s, and Elizabeth had never done television. And she came along to the studio, and we were... And she wasn't going to be part of the programme. But we were desperate to think of a way that she would feel led to appear. And Richard Binmar was telling stories. Basically, he told an adorable story about Elizabeth. We went to a break, and then I belted down to the green room, you know, and said, you surely must come on now, Elizabeth. And she did. And it was her first ever television. She came on. She's wonderful. She came on with wearing a diamond, you know, that looked as though it would pay the national debt of Thailand. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, was, it was really enormous. But she was superb. And, uh, and that was her first ever television interview. That was my dad, David Frost, in the late 1980s, reflecting on the fact that he secured the first ever extended television interview with Elizabeth Taylor. Dame Elizabeth Taylor was an English-American actor and star of more than 50 films, who ruled the world of cinema for more than six decades, winning two Academy Awards in the process. The violet-eyed phenomenon was Hollywood's first million-dollar star, and quite simply a legend of the silver screen, and she changed what it meant to be a celebrity. For much of her career, she was surrounded by paparazzi, her star power helping usher in our culture's obsession with the private lives of the rich and famous. But beyond her public image, Taylor was a humanitarian and an activist, one of the first celebrities to draw attention to the AIDS pandemic. Her charity work earned her a damehood in the UK. She became a Knight of the French Legion of Honor and received the President's Citizens Medal in the United States. As we've already heard, Dad was the first to get her to give a proper TV interview, and that was in March 1970. She'd sit down with him three times in total, and on one of those occasions, she seemed, to me at least, very vulnerable, drawing a soft and generous interview approach from my dad. Across those conversations, we learnt of Taylor's battles with Hollywood's most powerful men. I said, Mr. Mayor, you and your studio can go to hell. And I ran out of the room in tears. Her thoughts on the film industry's pay gaps. I think there should be equal rights. I think women should be able to work and get the same pay if they do the same work as a man. And why ultimately she pivoted towards humanitarian work halfway through her life. I mean, acting is, in a way, selfish it gratifies your own kind of personal ego i'm wilfred frost and in this episode we're exploring the life of the immortal star elizabeth taylor you said some fantastic quotes in your life you know i must have been drunk <laughs> Born in London in 1932, Elizabeth Taylor was the daughter of a retired stage actress and an art dealer, both of whom had a Rolodex of famous friends. Who had the most influence on you, your mother or your father, really? Oh, I would think both, really. Uh, my mother, who was uh, tender and gentle, and my father could be 
the disciplinarian and he could be fairly rough at times. But you, because when was it you went when you did your first stage appearance, wasn't it? Your first stage appearance was a, your only stage appearance was in front, in front of royalty, wasn't it? You, you were three and a half? Oh, that was a disaster. <laughs> Why? Well, I was in uh, Madame Vacani's class. She was famous for teaching uh, Princess Margaret and Princess Elizabeth, now Queen Elizabeth. And at the end of one performance, I got a great big hand because I did a solo and I adored the applause. And the curtain closed. And I didn't want the curtain to close. You know, the royal family was there and I was still doing my butterfly uh, <laughs> curtsy. And they had to finally haul me off the stage. Screams of Elizabeth, you must come off now. So. No, screams of Elizabeth, get off! <laughs> Elizabeth, it seems, had a penchant for the spotlight, but that didn't mean that, as a child, she had dreams of acting. Did you know then you were going to be an actress? No, I, I thought I was going to train horses and maybe ride them, you know, in marvellous... Oh, things like Princess Anne does. Mm. Oh, I envy her, so... You do? Oh, I think she's so terrific. It's terrific, too, to be sportswoman of the year or something yeah. for her riding, just judged but as a rider. that's what I wanted more than anything in the world. Really? That was your first ambition? To be a, a great sportswoman. And really, it was just the fact that the family moved, I guess, to Hollywood that really, sort of by accident, led you into that field. You might have been a horsey lady otherwise. Oh, I think I would have. In early 1939, as the spectre of war loomed across Europe, Elizabeth's parents moved the family from England to California, eventually settling in Beverly Hills. The first thing that started to... You nearly, nearly went for a job in Gone with the Wind, didn't you? But that wasn't the start of your movie career. Oh, no, no. Uh, my mother and father were, were approached because the greatest compliment of all, evidently, they thought I looked like Vivian Lee. And they said she should play Scarlett O'Hara's daughter. Uh, but my mother said, particularly my father, we don't want our daughter to be in movies. Eventually, her parents would waver. With a return to Europe seeming unlikely as World War II continued to rage, they opened up to the idea of allowing their young daughter onto a film set. But then something did come of it, didn't it? With what was it, Man or Mouse, was it? Was the first picture you did? I remember that I played a, uh, a beastly child that sort of slung uh, rubber bands at ladies and gentlemen's bottoms. <laughs> but Lassie was really the first biggie, as it uh, were, wasn't it? Yeah. How did that come about? Well, they, uh, they were looking for uh, a little English girl because the, the one that they'd had cast had grown too fast because the film took something like seven months and she grew something like five inches within the duration of the film so they had to get somebody else. 
and and I had an outstanding frightfully like that sort of English accent. Frightfully English. Oh, I mean, my God, my God. So, you know, I was available, and I was little, mm. and they thought, well, we can do all the two weeks of work, shove it all together, and stick it in the film. And that's how I started. That was 1942, when Taylor was just 10 years old. She'd soon sign a seven-year contract with MGM. It was a life-altering decision. Suddenly, the movie studio controlled almost every facet of her life, how she dressed, where she traveled, and where she went to school. Because it was like six or seven kids in the cast, right? And because it was at MGM, you were rushing in and out of films, and they were all different ages. It must have been very unnatural for her. For a child, compared with the school oh, you're just terribly unnatural, because you had no time to look out the window or have your own thoughts of what you've been reading and make it into your own. Because if you did that, it would be like back to work. Not even a teenager, Liz was already getting film work. She appeared in Jane Eyre and The White Cliffs of Dover. Then, at the age of 12, she began jockeying for a starring role in the film National Velvet, a film that was destined to fulfill her childhood dream of riding horses for a living. There was just one problem. She was too short. Well, it's funny, he'd measured me, Pandora Burma, on his wall in his office. And he said, it won't be believable if you're that small. I said, I'll grow. He said, see me in a couple of months. I saw him in three months, and I'd grown three inches. What happened? You went on a diet and a... Well, or the reverse I, of a diet, didn't you? I ate steaks. I stretched myself. And I kind of willed myself to grow. And I did grow three inches in three months. And you went back and the guy gave you the part, did he? Taylor did more than just win the part. She became a star with a lineup that included Mickey Rooney and Angela Lansbury. National Velvet smashed the box office and earned her a new contract with MGM, earning the 12 year old $750 a week. But her rising star also meant that she had to contend with the male-dominated machine that was Hollywood. One person who comes into your life at this point, I mean, as a very powerful influence, as he was on almost everybody's life at MGM, was Louis B. Mayer. I mean, what was your, what was your impression of him? Well, I thought he was a beast. He used his power over people to such a degree uh, that he, he no longer became a, uh, a man. He became an instrument of power. And he didn't care who he cut down or who he hurt. Louis B. Mayer was the co-founder of MGM, a self-made man who was famous for his temper and habit of controlling the private lives of his actors. He saw himself as a puppet master and that he could discard his subjects, his actors, 
at any moment. The idea of a star being born is bourgeois, Mayer once said. A star is made, created, carefully and cold-bloodedly built up from nothing, from nobody. Did you know people he can't be right? I mean, did everybody? I know all people. He never hurt me. Oh. Uh, because I think maybe I was too young. What was his annual birthday party like? That sounds an incredible... Well, I, I, I went to one, and I was only about 14 years old at the time. And, you know, we all had to assemble at L.B. Mayer's birthday party in the commissary. And he would sort of stand up and have a happy birthday song to him. And I felt so kind of like awkward and stiff, you know, sort of had to sit, sit around him and pay homage to, to this man that was obviously slightly crazy. But anyway, Perry Como, on one of these huge things in, in the commissary, got up and saying, happy birthday, dear LB, and you. At this point, Taylor impersonates the way Como raised his middle finger to Mayer. Ah, that was like a Deadpool. All over the, the huge commissary. Because he'd done the, the unforgivable. And he told the old man, what everybody else in their own hearts were dying to tell him. And he finally came out and said it. And it was glorious. And it was one of the happiest moments of my life. And I was only about 14. Did this do wonders for his career at MGM? He was blackballed from every studio in Hollywood for, I don't know, Five years. Despite witnessing the possible repercussions, Taylor stood up to Mayer herself a few years later when she was just 14 and went to see him with her mother. She'd just been announced to appear in a film called Sally in Our Alley, which called for multiple song and dance routines. I was announced for it, and it meant that I had to learn to sing and dance, which meant a lot of work, because I am not a singer or a dancer, as you may have noticed. So Mum and I went up to see LB, and he'd given this big, long lecture about, I am your father. Whenever you need anything, come to me, and I will help you. You are all my children. It was like Jesus, my children. So like two little suckers. Mum and I went up to his office, which was like Mussolini's. You know, the office was way, way at the end. And you had to walk. Well, it seemed like a mile. And you walked over this white carpet to this white oak desk and the white chair, which this 
dwarf sat and peered at you. And it was kind of terrifying. And you'd sit down, and then he'd say, yes? What is it? And we said, well, uh, uh, we've read that uh, I, I was going to do a film called um, Sally in Our Alley. And, you know, if it's true, then I should start to do dancing lessons and singing lessons. And silence, dead face. And he all of a sudden started to like foam at the mouth. And he said, how dare you come into my office and tell me how to run my business. You are nothing, pointing to me. I put you and pulled you out of the gutter. And you'd be nowhere if it hadn't been for me. Well, now, I promise you, David, I would, would have been quite happy uh, in my gutter, whatever he thought that was, without him. Yeah. He said, get out of here, you. And your daughter are nothing but gutter snipes. Get out of here. And I said, it's the first swear word I ever used. I said, Mr. Mayor, you and your studio can go to hell. And I ran out of the room in tears. And I was called like an hour later by the vice president to go in and apologize to L.B. Mayor for telling him and his studio to go to hell. And I said, I didn't see why I had to. And you didn't go in and apologize? I never saw him or spoke to him again. Incredible episode. And yet, somehow or other, you, you did stay without ever seeing him and do, do more things for MGM. Well, of course, he wasn't about to release you, presumably. Yeah, well, I had to, unfortunately, finish my contract. Which had many, many more years to run. Yeah. Despite going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the most powerful man at MGM, Liz did not face any punishment. Her teenage years saw more and more screen time, more and more success. She was featured on the cover of Time magazine and began getting top billing in her films. She starred in Cynthia and appeared, most famously, in Little Women in 1949. By the time she was in her late teens, she was accustomed to success and the trappings that came with it. Oh, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me was going to my graduation. I was 17, so we get up there and we stand in lines, about 300 of us. And the, <laughs> the principal started a speech about how we would all go out into the world and how some of us would become filling station attendants, shop workers and hairdressers. 
this, that, or the other. And some of us would earn, you know, like $25 a week, $300 a week. The time I was earning $2,500 a week. And I started getting a nervous case of, of the giggles. And it started building up from my bowels. I just couldn't control it. And it's like, you know, when you all go out into the world and start to earn money. Well, I'd been earning money since I was 10 years old. And it started to give me just a fit of the giggles. And it became contagious like measles. It ran up and down the lines. And I was the worst of them all. There were tears falling down my face. Headmaster must have been thrilled. Did he realize who had emanated? Thrilled? I think he could have killed me. But this was the late 1940s, and despite her experience, Taylor was still just an adolescent. But that didn't stop the studio from thrusting her into adult roles. Can you remember the thing that always gets headlines? Can you remember your first screen kiss? No. Your second, I know, was with Peter Lawford, was your second screen kiss, wasn't it? Oh, I made a terrible boo-boo then. Because I had a mad, passionate crush on Peter Lawford. And, you know, I was too young for him, and he wouldn't invite me out or anything like that. And I was devastated. And anyway, we had, like, a love scene to do. And I can't rem remember his name in the film. It was something like Laurie. And instead of saying, oh, Laurie, what are we going to do? I said, everybody, everybody knowing that I had a crush on Peter. I said, oh, Peter, what are we going to do? And the whole set just fell down with laughter. And I turned crimson, as only a 16-year-old can turn. That's really crimson, isn't it? Oh, wow. It was horrid. It was really awful. Taylor took on more serious adult roles, appearing in the financial smash Father of the Bride in 1950. And then, at the age of 18, she would become a bride herself, marrying Conrad Hilton, Jr., of the Hilton Hotel family fortune. Taylor was still a teenager at the time, and the nuptials would only last barely a few months before the relationship collapsed in divorce. For Taylor, it was the first of eight marriages to seven different men. You said that, in fact, your parents gave you a very, very strict upbringing, you said once, a very proper upbringing, and even in the, in the hothouse that was Hollywood, that. You said the very strict and proper upbringing. Morality I learned at home required marriage. I couldn't just have an affair, so I got married all those times. During her second marriage to the actor Michael Wilding, Taylor would have two children, something she described as an almost spiritual experience. The sensation of, of life inside you, oh, it's hard to describe. Nothing. Nothing in the world is 
greater than that. I don't know, David, how to say it. You're carrying around something that is bigger than life. It is life. It raised just one thought in my mind, which was, do you actually feel sorry for men that they don't have that experience? Uh, no, not really. I think it's one of the things that we women have as our own. I mean, I enjoy being a woman. I have worked since I was 10 years old. So if you want to go into women's live, I have been women live since I was a baby. But I still love men. And I love women in their role in accordance to men in their role. What is the role? Uh, what is being a woman in relation to a man? I mean, what is the role, do you think? I like a man to be the dominating figure in my life. But I like also to be his equal. I, I don't want somebody to boss me around. I don't want somebody to tell me what to do if it's just for the sake of telling me. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. David? Yeah. I think there should be equal rights. I think women should be able to work and get the same pay if they do the same work as a man. That is only fair and just if a woman does less work, less pay. If a man does less work, less pay. If you do equal work, equal pay. If you have an equal partnership, sexual, whatever. It should be on the same basis. As a woman in Hollywood, Taylor knew this dynamic particularly well. She also knew how personal relationships could help a person grow. She reflected fondly on her third and fifth husbands, Mike Todd and Richard Burton. In fact, you said that one strong man in your life, Mike Todd, got rid of your inferiority complex, and he was a strong man too. It's true. And, and really liberated you. Did you really have an inferiority complex once? Yes. And to, until Mike, who sort of made the breakthrough, and then Richard, who finally said to, to me, look, baby, you're sufficient within yourself. You can get on on your own. You have a good intelligence. And he gave me a confidence and an and awareness. And Richard, Richard told me not, not to be afraid. I think the fact that you were uh, shy, I mean, is fascinating to people who don't really realize that. I gather that Humphrey Bogart once even gave you some advice about how to behave at parties, to meet people, oh, didn't, didn't he? Oh, bogey. 
He took me aside at one party, and he said, look, love, you're an absolute crumpet. You follow Michael wilding around like a puppy, and you just kind of listen to his conversation, and you sort of either say yes or no, or agree or disagree in monosyllables. And he said, get out on your own. Go out in the room. Talk to other people. And make some kind of statement, a statement of your own. And if you're disagreed with, then disagree back, if you believe in it. And I started doing that. And I finally started talking. Taylor credited a lot of her growth to her close relationship with her third husband, Mike Todd, the only man she didn't divorce. A theatre and film producer, Todd died tragically in a plane crash in 1958. Taylor had meant to be on the plane with him, but hadn't travelled due to illness. And a few years later, she had her own near-death experience. Then came, as far as I could see, looking at your life, a real turning point. I mean, your, your bout, your successful bout with pneumonia in London and the determination that came out of that. That experience was like a Damascus experience for you in a way, wasn't it? In 1961, a 29-year-old Taylor suffered a near-fatal bout of pneumonia. She was nearly pronounced dead multiple times and underwent an emergency tracheotomy. A few weeks after the procedure, she accepted an Academy Award for Best Actress for the film Butterfield 8, with her scar still visible. Oh, I, I think that was a thing of pure will, willpower. And so I've been told by the doctors that without the pure physical and moral willpower that I never would have survived. I wanted to live, whereas before, I hadn't really cared much. And it wasn't long after that that, uh, that you signed, and that's the picture of you signing. You signed for Cleopatra. Cleopatra, the four-hour-long epic made in 1963, was the most expensive film ever made at the time. Taylor negotiated her role for a record-setting $1 million. But beyond the numbers, she also met her fifth husband, Richard Burton. Together, the couple would begin a jet-setting relationship that enraptured the Hollywood media, fueling an American obsession with celebrity that's never really stopped since. In fact, as we heard from Dad above, he got his first interview with Taylor when he was meant to be just interviewing Burton. Welcome back with Richard Burton. Well, we were talking about uh, you and Elizabeth, and uh, you've starred together to great effect in a lot of pictures. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Was that, was that a difficult film to make? I mean, in the sense that it's so corrosive on screen. Well, everybody warned us... Uh... People actually sent us telegrams, people who played it on the stage, saying, please do not play because it will break up your marriage. Uh, we ignored them, 
and um, survived. Uh, the most difficult part, of course, of all, was Elizabeth's. And uh, quite rightly, she dominated the film. She won an Oscar for it, he said bitterly. <laughs> and I didn't, he said equally bitterly. <laughs> Your time will come, Mr. Burton. Anyway, I think it's one of uh, Elizabeth's great performances. She's blessed with extraordinary beauty and uh, staggering intelligence. And uh, I think that uh, eventually she will end up as one of the great legends, the great legendary actresses. I have to say that because she's watching. <laughs> and also because you mean it. And watching she was off stage. Over the next few minutes, Dad played a few scenes from Virginia Woolf and then went to break, during which time he rushed backstage to the green room and convinced Elizabeth Taylor to step onto a TV chat show set for the very first time. Welcome back with Richard Burton. And we were just talking about a lady who was fantastic in those two scenes. There are three chairs here now because it's my privilege to welcome now. Will you welcome her, please, Mrs. Richard Burton? You're looking absolutely fantastic. Welcome. Richard was just saying, which is absolutely true, what a fantastic performance uh, you gave in that picture. What do you, in fact, what's your favorite performance, in fact, in your career? Uh, well, I think really Virginia Woolf and uh, Taming of the Shrew. I was so scared doing Taming of the Shrew because it, it was the first time I tried to do Shakespeare. And this one, my beloved, <laughs> was no help at all. I just started to shake inside and outside and I couldn't even say my own name. I couldn't pronounce anything with an accent. I, I just was fumbling and stumbling. And he said, look, if you could do, like, you know, the character in Virginia Woolf, well, then you can do Shakespeare. And unless you do it, and it's your own, uh, then it, it will have no merit. So he literally kind of kicked me out, out of the nest. And the first couple of days of shooting, I was so frightened that we had to redo them. And anyway, you know, I, I sort of just uh, muddled along. And then I began to enjoy it. The one thing he did say to me was, um, don't think of it as being verse. Just think of it as being the person uh, shouting, bawling, screaming, uh, being tender, whatever, you know. Uh, don't make a metronome out of it like you were taught in school. Uh, don't do a verse out of it. And that helped me enormously. In a later appearance together in March of 1972, the two reflected on how they first met. First time that I went to uh, Hollywood to do uh, my first American picture. And uh, one of the few people I knew in Hollywood was a man called Stuart Granger. And he invited me to his house uh, for a Sunday Bloody Mary and uh, swim in the pool. And there were a lot of interesting people around, and all brown from the Californian sun. And there was sitting, or half lying, in one of those stretch out deck chairs, a woman with huge dark glasses on. And I told a lot of funny stories. I thought they were funny. And uh, everybody laughed except this strange sphinx like creature uh, who sat on the other side of the pool. 
and I thought that she was probably the most unapproachable, unattainable, delectable, delicious, pulchritudinous, remarkable creature I'd ever seen. So I set out to attract her attention. I did not succeed. <laughs> it took me another nine years before she said hello. And uh, I do remember the first meeting on Cleopatra. I arrived from New York on a Monday morning, and I went to the studio straight from the overnight plane. And I went straight on the set and met Elizabeth. And uh, I, I found myself rather lamely saying, did anyone ever tell you that you're a pretty girl? Which reduced uh, Elizabeth <laughs> to uh, hysteria. Not, in, not impressed by that fly at all? Oh, I ran back to the dressing room. I could hardly wait to tell the girls. I said, there is this great Welch wit who came out with, yes. you are the prettiest girl I've ever seen. I couldn't well, believe no. it. Yeah, I, I wasn't actually on form that day. <laughs> but, uh, you sure were. What about them? I made up for it later. The pair's playfulness together was fabulous to watch. Are you making faces? You're not on anymore, are you? <laughs> <laughs> you, um, you may have noticed, ladies and gentlemen, that the... Uh, the only uh, quarrels we have are public. <laughs> Meeting in 1961, they married in 1964. I've asked several people on this program, and there's scarcely anyone better qualified than you to do it. How would you define the word love, in fact? Yeah, an extraordinarily difficult question. Love, I think, is, um, is a high degree of tolerance. Uh, carried to almost excess, that is, uh, if you love somebody really truly and he or she, your child, your wife, your daughter, your son, turns out to be a murderer, that you love them despite everything. Uh, that, I suppose, is total, all-encompassing love. I asked earlier on Richard to define love. H how would you define that word? I always ask people how to define it, but it's so different. Oh, I was watching. Oh, boy, was I watching. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, I think uh, what Richard said, um, to not be facetious. I agree with him. Uh, I don't know how to express it because if you feel something so deeply and personally, you just can't capsulize love. You can't put it into a category. It, it means, as Richard pointed out, mother love, child love, uh, man and woman love, whatever. But if it is love, it must encompass everything, the faults, as, as well as the things that you're proud of. And one has to be tolerant of um, one's intolerances, if you love, with children, with uh, grown-ups, with friends. Yeah. 
Would you share one thing with us? Because Richard was talking about the joy of having the money to give presents. Could you show us that, as you did to me this morning, that, that diamond? Because it does just look superb. Which one? Which one? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the odd thing, uh, the odd coincidence is that the uh, massive one, the most famous one, um, is 69.42 carats. And the tiny one is point. Oh, four, two carats. It's but kind of romantic, isn't it? It's so very romantic. Incredibly. What does 69.4 carats really what, mean? I mean, it, do you want to see what it What it means is it can't be dismissed as an idle bauble. <laughs> Burton and Taylor would make 11 major movies together. And as already referenced, Taylor won the second of her two Academy Awards alongside Burton in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in 1966. Is it easier to work with one's husband in a picture or more difficult, in fact? Well, it depends on the day. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on how you wake up. You know, if you wake up feeling sour with your husband <laughs> and he with you, uh, you know, you have to kind of pull yourself together a bit sharper. But Richard said on one occasion how much you had taught him about filmmaking. You said on one occasion, Richard. Yes. Well, she did. She taught me to um, um, cut down on... I was obviously a very stagey actor. Still am, I'm afraid, but have uh, picked up a lot of tricks from Elizabeth. Taylor and Burton were married for 11 years between 1964 and 1976, briefly divorcing in 74 before remarrying the following year. It was the most enduring of Taylor's multiple marriages. Dad's final interview with Taylor was in 1972, at which point her professional focus was very much still in acting. We well, once said, in fact, that you you thought sentiment was marvelous. You said you didn't like sentimentality. I don't. But you thought sentiment was marvelous. You said on that occasion. Mm. You said some fantastic quotes in your life. You know. I must have been drunk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you said on one occasion, for instance. There's no deodorant like success, which was a reference to people coming up to you when Hamlet was such a huge hit in mm. New York and so on. Well, that's a sensational quote. Taylor would live for another 39 years after her last conversation with Dad, and in that time would devote more of her efforts to humanitarian causes and less time to film. In what way would it be, as you clearly feel it would be, more worthwhile, more useful to humanity than acting. Do you feel it would be more useful to humanity than acting? Oh, yeah. I mean, acting is, in a way, selfish. It gratifies your own kind of personal ego to do something else which is, is that's for other people, not just for you. And even though she'd not yet made that major life pivot, we did get a glimpse of what some of her passions might be back in 1972. What would you like to do, if you were to do less of acting, what would you like to do more of? I'd like to work for UNICEF. And it has to be something that I can do that gives me, like, a full-time job. But Is Particularly for children, you feel? I mean, UNICEF, I mean... Oh, yeah. For children, most of all. 
I feel like very strongly. And it, it's just something I, I want to do. But even more than her work for UNICEF, she's remembered for her impact as a vocal and early supporter for those suffering from HIV AIDS, in a time when even many leaders refuse to acknowledge the disease, using her tabloid star power to launch the issue into the mainstream. In fact, it was her who would convince President Ronald Reagan, himself a former Hollywood star, to finally acknowledge the disease publicly. She would testify in front of Congress multiple times in support of legislation, ultimately raising millions of dollars for research. She once said, celebrity is not something that comes without responsibility, and she certainly lived by that for the rest of her life, ultimately being honored even more spectacularly for her humanitarian work with awards like the President's Citizen Medal than she was for her acting, despite two Oscars, two BAFTAs, and four Golden Globes. Elizabeth Taylor passed away in March 2011, aged 79. Well, thank you for being with us. It's been a great joy, a great privilege, and uh, may we wish you Oscars or anything else. I want Richard to win the Oscar because, you know, then we could mate our eyes and have little babies. <laughs> have little tiny eyes. In a row, yes. We'd plant them in... Uh... Wouldn't that be in nice and male and female Oscar? Oh, a little baby Oscar. It would be perfect. Like may, they, may they all be yours. Lots of little Oscars. <laughs> Thank you both for being with us. Bye-bye for now. Our thanks to Mr. and Mrs. Richard Burton. In the next episode of The Frost Tapes, one of the most adored all-round entertainers of all time. Sammy Davis Jr. This is what makes Frank Sinatra, what every singer says, oh my goodness, his phrasing. Because I said, all the way, not Frank. He goes, when somebody needs you, it's no good unless she needs you. Oh, we. The enunciation is so perfect that you just, it just grooves you totally to hear him pronounce a word. The Frost Tapes is a production of Paradine Productions and Chalk and Blade. Executive producers are Wilfred Frost, George Frost, Laura Sheeter, Ruth Barnes, and Nigel Sinclair. Produced by Lily Ames, Rosie Stouffer, and Matt Nielsen. Written by Lucas Riley and Wilfred Frost. Sound design and mixing by Alex Portfelix and Matt Nielsen. Music composed by Pascal Wise. With special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions and to Whitehorse Pictures. <laughs>